With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Patriello. Joining me here, MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. We got an interesting show today because we just had the first big trade of the season, uh, Jose Quintana to the Cubs. We're going to talk about that. A couple of hitters who should hopefully be rebounding. Um, some interesting stuff from the Futures game and a Hall of Fame inductee that we may have talked about once or twice before. Uh, but real quick, before we get into this stuff, Matt, you attended all of the All-Star festivities. How did you enjoy it? What stood out to you? Um, uh... The Home Run Derby was pretty cool. It's pretty because, cool. It's turned into a fantastic event. Can I say, and I, I understand I come at this with an extreme amount of bias, given that we both work for MLB, the changes to the Derby and the All-Star game over the last couple of years, like adding in the timer and making the, the game itself not count, are phenomenal, right? It's really, I think, improved both events. The Home Run Derby has gone from being like a little bit of a drag to like now it's like a really fun event. And the players, they're getting, they're getting the right guys in it. It's oh, like, yeah, absolutely. This year was like almost everyone you... Like, what you would want to see in it. Like I, Joey Gallo is maybe the only guy, but like you have Judge, you have Stan, you have Sano, you have Sanchez. I mean, these are exactly the guys who should have so been. So it, um, it, uh, it was a fun week. Yeah. And, um, and I, Marlins, Marlins Park I'd been to briefly before. This is the first time I really got to see a game there, so I could check that one off the list. As I remember, you were there for the World Baseball Classic when you got to go on the air with John Smoltz and explain to him what catch probability was, which we just invented like three days beforehand. Uh, this is true. Good memory. So that was fun. Um, let's get to, so like two hours ago, we had our first big trade. Jose Quintana from the White Sox to the Cubs. And what I, the, the first impression I had of this trade was it, we, know, we all learned about it via press release. There are yeah, no these, rumors whatsoever. These are the best kinds of <laughs> trades. The best kinds of trades are the ones where Everyone finds finds out about the whole thing at once from a press release. I'm always impressed when clubs are able to sort of keep it so buttoned up that nothing gets out. Uh, press release came. I was sitting at my desk. I think I said, holy bleep, something yeah. that I can't say on the air. And Mike was like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> it was a press release that just said, Eloy Jimenez, that, that, like trade, like Eloy Jimenez. And I was like, wait. Wait, he was the headline? Because it, it was the White Sox release. I got oh, first. okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I have to wonder what happened in Miami, right? Were the two front offices there and we're just hanging out in each other's press bo- uh, suites talking about this? Uh, so, yeah, Jose Quintana uh, from the White Sox to the Cubs. And there's a lot to unpack here. One thing I think uh, is interesting is we can maybe stop talking about how teams won't trade in between the division or the city anymore, right? Because that's been like a long-held thing. Oh, it won't happen. I know this is like the first major trade in a while, but uh, this is – I think it's, we're seeing this change now as a new generation of front offices. Yeah, no, they, um, they actually have a, um, a good quote from Rick Hahn here. This notion that we wouldn't do business with them because they're in town or somehow we would actually take an inferior baseball deal for non-baseball reasons <laughs> – because of emotion or a rivalry or something totally unrelated to putting the best possible team on the field for the next several years is frankly somewhat laughable. Uh, I, there's anger in that. <laughs> yes. I actually kind of like that. That's not how Jerry is wired, <laughs> Kenny is wired, I'm wired, or anybody in the organization. I love it. I'm actually extremely in favor of that. All right, so we'll get to... Uh, yeah, you but know. Just for the record, it was the first deal between the two teams since 2006. The famous Neil Cotts... Uh, someone whose name is... It Kate doesn't Supreme. even matter. Before that, I believe John Garland and Matt Karchner. Well, they it doesn't to, happen a lot. And, I mean... Amazingly, they did trade Sammy Sosa 
uh, for George Bell. And as you reminded me years ago, Ron Santo briefly spent the last few minutes of his career as a White Sox. And uh, if this trend continues, we'll hopefully be seeing Lucas Duda as a Yankee, which should have happened like a month ago. That's a different tangent entirely. So Jose Quintana is a really interesting guy. I mean, if he's going to the Cubs, and I don't think, you know, of all the things that have gone wrong for the Cubs this year, one of the least surprising, I think, is that their starting rotation has been kind of thin. I mean, we knew this back in the winter, that it was unreasonable to expect that the same five guys would stay healthy all year long, and after having pitched to November, that they'd be as effective as they were. And that hasn't happened. So that's not a total surprise that they need a starting pitcher. Um, But I think it's interesting because Quintana is one of those guys where sometimes he's hard to value because he's really valuable because of his durability. He throws 200 innings a year. This might be his fifth straight year doing so. And he's valuable because he has pretty good contact skills, but he's not a flamethrower. You know, he's not Max Scherzer. He's not Clayton Kershaw. Uh, He's also under contract for an extremely team-friendly deal, uh, under contract through, I believe, 2020, if if they want. Guaranteed through 2018 with club options of 10.5 for 19 and 20. I mean, the, the... the first line of the Cubs press release said he's under control through 2020. Right, right. So they, it's pretty clear how they, they see it. And understandably, $10.5 million a year for a pitcher, I mean, that's like a, you know, 10.5 is what a number four, number five starter, get, number four starter gets in free agency these years. And that's a days. big deal because, um, you know, the Cubs, uh, John Lester's under contract for a long time, but Arietta is almost free agent. John Lackey's going to be a free agent. Hendricks is under team control, but you know hasn't exactly had a very good or healthy year. And I, as I remember, when I wrote last winter that the Cubs should trade Schorber for a controllable starting pitcher, uh, which looks better by the day, by the way, that, I mean, I'm pretty proud of that one. I have to say, Cubs fans got so mad at me, and uh, it was fantastic. But uh, as I said at the time, and this is probably no longer true, but at the time, they didn't have in uh, their MLB pipeline top 20, I think the first guy they had who was a pitcher above single a was like number 18 like it was all low level pitchers or high level bats they just do not have any young pitching uh nearly ready young pitching in the system so the fact that they didn't get a rental but a guy who's going to be in that rotation for the next couple years with john lester uh, and and hopefully kyle hendricks that's a huge deal for them and that's a big part of why they had to give up such a huge prospect haul to get a guy like Jose oh for sure i mean that that was i mean that's why quintana was the most appealing guy on the market and what's interesting about this trade is because of that contract he's a He's a player that, from a salary standpoint, pretty much any team could be in on. And the Brewers were supposedly one of the teams in on Quintana. So in some reason, I could see the reason why the Cubs struck quickly is knowing that it was kind of a, a preemptive strike to get a couple extra starts out of him, but make sure the Brewers couldn't get him. Because the Brewers aren't going to go trade for Cueto. They're not going to go trade for you, Darvish. But Quintana's a guy that you could see the Brewers going to trade for. They have the deep farm system. They can certainly take on the salary. So that's, it's kind of a bit of a, a, a double whammy from the Cubs' perspective to sort of take him away from Milwaukee uh, in the process of uh, obviously adding him to the rotation. It, it warms my heart that in July we're considering what top-level pitchers the Milwaukee Brewers could be thinking about acquiring. One but of the most fun things of this anyway, whole season. This is the StatCast podcast. Right. There are some interesting StatCast Well, I was going to get to that next. I was going to get to that next, and let's lead into that by, by actually looking at some of his traditional stats, which don't paint a very good picture right, uh, picture right now. He has a 449 ERA. He has a career win-loss record of below 500. Now, we all know that that win-loss record is totally irrelevant, and it means nothing. But the 449 ERA, uh, even though ERA is not exactly the best tool, it's still not something you can totally overlook. That's a lot of earned runs allowed. Uh, and there's some interesting things behind that. I mean, if you look at him over the years, uh, his last couple of years, he's been very consistent, right? 332 ERA. 336 ERA, 320 ERA. That's the kind of pitcher he is this year, a 449 ERA. However, 
his strikeout percentage is up by a lot. I feel, like I said, he's been consistent the last three years. His strikeout percentage uh, about twenty one percent every single year. This year it's up to almost twenty five percent. But he's actually kind of been swept up in the home run surge, and this is his issue that he's given up more home runs. But here's what's interesting about this. If you look at his expected weighted on base average, and that's a stat stat we use, uh, it's based on the combination of exit velocity and launch angle to see how damaging a batted ball usually would be. Uh, and it's rolled into, uh, along with strikeouts and walks, so you have a, a full picture. In 2015, his expected weighted on base was 307, uh, and the league average, I think, is about 320. And last year, it was 293, so that's very, very good. And this year, it's 300 which is exactly in the middle of that. So if you just ba- look at his quality of contact and the you know, strikeouts and walks, because his walks are up along with the strikeouts, so they even out a little bit, he's basically been the same exact guy he's been. If you look at his hard hit percentage, which we count as a uh, 95-mile-an-hour exit velocity or higher, two years ago, 33%. This year, 30, last year, 34%. This year, 34.8%. So up slightly, but not by that much. So you look at all that, and I see a guy who's basically been the exact same pitcher, more or less. So now you're asking... Where's the 44090 ERA coming from? And uh, while I understand that there are limits to doing exactly what I'm about to do, I'm going to say it anyway. He's had two, he had two disaster starts this year, back-to-back. May 24th, he gave up eight earned runs to Arizona. May 30th, he gave up seven earned runs to Boston. While you obviously can't ignore those and pretend they didn't happen, if you look at the rest of his starts, 354 ERA. His career is a 351 ERA. So I'm willing to say, based on this guy's long track record, that he had a pretty lousy week. Otherwise, he's been who he is. Yeah, and I mean, certainly the... the the prospect hall that they returned suggests that the Cubs are acknowledging that they, that that he's, he's elite. You know, you don't give up. You know, your top two prospects for a pitcher that you don't think is still a, a you know a, a tr- like he's like kind of a classic number two starter. Like you know, like very durable and like sometimes elite, like occasionally elite. That'd be interesting, won't it? Let's let's say the Cubs come back and take the division from the Brewers, which they very well still could, even though they're in a hole. Is he your number two starter? I think we agree Lester's probably number one. Do you start him over Arietta? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe depending on how Arietta's throwing at that point. I just think it's an interesting conversation to have because Arietta is the more prototypical, like, I'm going to go out there and be the horse and throw at 95 miles an hour, while Quintana is a little more, I'm going to generate self-contact. I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. Well, you know, certainly we'll, we'll cross that bridge. A lot of it so much depends on, uh, on uh, you know, how they're pitching at the time and sort of what the who they're playing, you know, yada, yada, what that right. lineup looks like. So right, right. It, that, that's sort of what's hard to tell. But I, I like looking at, um, you know, we look at these expected outcome stats, like what should have happened based on the kind of, of, of um, contact he's been allowing. So uh, 183 starting pitchers this year have had at least 100 batters faced. So that's the sample we're working from. As I said, his expected weighted on base uh, is 300. So that's 42nd of 183. So that's squarely in the top half. It's similar to Jake Arrieta. It's very similar to you, Darvish. His expected batting average, which uh, is the same thing. It just, you know, every hit is treated the same. 50th of 183, similar to Chris Archer, similar to you, Darvish. I mean, these are still pretty good names, and I think that actually kind of makes sense. I don't think of him as a top 10 starter, because he's not. But is he a top 30 starter in baseball-ish? Probably, as you said, a strong number two. I'll buy that. Yeah, that's that's sure. pretty valuable, especially with this contract. It's a, fa- it's a fascinating trade for a variety of reasons, and, like, it's one that you could t- totally justify from, from both sides. I mean, now the White Sox... It's unclear if they're going to be good in the next couple of years, but there's no question they're going to be a lot of fun. They, oh, I mean, I think they will. I mean, it's hard to say they're going to be good, right? But you saw, you know, what they got from the Red Sox for Chris Sale. Now what they've added here, they've got more trades to make, too. And what they got from, from the Nationals for uh, Adam Eaton, I mean. Also uh, signing Luis Robert. Also that. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a very interesting team. And they got some young guys now, like Tim Anderson seems like he might be a keeper. Um, the bullpen they have is pretty stellar. They're going to trade. They should trade someone like Tommy Conley or, or Swarzak for like an interesting 
second tier prospect. And also, Tim, uh, Tim Anderson is the kind of guy like even if he's not good, he's fun because he's fast right. and he has some pop. Like he's fun to watch. That's my point. It's sort of like it's going to be an entertaining team no matter what. They'll still probably trade Todd Frazier. They could still trade, as you said, Conley, Swarzak. Uh, they could. They might trade Jose Abreu. It's like. Right. There are, I think they are what, like five games under or something like that right now. And um, I saw that our White Sox.com beat reporter Scott Merkin wrote, like, it actually, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty okay season. And I saw he got a little bit heat about that because, you know, they're under 500, they're near the bottom of the league. But for what their goals were this year to rebuild for the future, yet still put an entertaining product on the field, I have to say they've done a pretty good job. And so if you look at the guys they got back, so they got back uh, Eli Jimenez, who is an outfielder who was ranked, I believe, number eight on uh, MLB Pipeline's top 10. In all of baseball. He's, uh, the, Cubs uh, one, he's the Cubs' right. number one prospect. And they've got, uh, they got right-hander Dylan Cease and infielders Matt Rose and Bryant Flitt, which I probably didn't pronounce that right. Neither of those last two guys are on the top 30. I will say the one thing about this Bryant Flitt, who I just learned about like an hour ago, he's listed at 5'10 and 146 pounds, which makes me the closest to a big league baseball player I have ever been. I'm not a big leaguer, but a professional <laughs> baseball player, because that's essentially what I am, too. So I am now going to follow this guy. So um, we actually have some interesting numbers in some of these guys. But very first, I promo, we want to talk to you about our friends at the Cut 4 podcast. It's the podcast from the staff of our Cut 4 section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far into our podcast, uh, we think you'll enjoy it because it'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. This week, Matt Monahan went to Miami, and he looked at the best-dressed major leaguer on the red carpet, the loudest applause during the All-Star game, and apparently grasshopper tacos, which are a thing. I don't know if you got a chance to sample those, but I'd love to hear your report if you did. Uh, So if you're into that, please search the Cut Forecast, C-U-T, number four, C-A-S-T, in iTunes or wherever else, and do click subscribe. So you, Matt, were in attendance for the Futures game, or not? Oh, you weren't there yet. Okay, unfortunately, but we watched the Futures game. It was on TV, Uh, and it's it's for me. It's annually like one of the most exciting events. Not only because you get to see the guys on TV, but you get them in front of Statcast cameras. So there are a couple interesting takeaways from this year. But first, I want to flash back to last year in San Diego, which uh, I was at the Futures game for that. I remember sitting in the press box and watching this. And Eloy Jimenez, who is going to the White Sox, uh, put on a little bit of a show last year in the Futures game. So, you know, he, right now he's only 20 years old. He's got a 351 on base, 490 slugging in A-ball. He's a legitimate future star. Last year he made this catch. He had to run 128 feet uh, up against the short right field wall to make a catch. Now, it had almost eight seconds worth of hang time. Certainly that matters. But at the time, if that had happened in a regular season game, it would have been one of the five longest distances by a right fielder to make a catch, which is cool. Like, he actually, you know, made it over there. Uh, but he also hit a home run 105.3 miles an hour. He hit a ground out 105.7 miles an hour uh, and also doubled at 99.9 miles an hour. I mean, that, that's and, pretty impressive. And, and last week, you might have seen it. We had a cut four post on it. He, uh, in batting practice in the minors, he hit one off the light stand. He pulled like a, uh, a natural Roy Hobbs it, and smashed the... Uh, and, and he did it later again, too. He did it twice. I think we have the video of the first one. It's fantastic. It's like right out of the movie. Uh, and he is, uh, as you said, the, the number eight overall prospect in all of baseball from MLB Pipeline. And listen to this. This is what they wrote about him. He has a better chance to hit than Jorge Soler. Okay, fine. And drew some upside comparisons to Giancarlo Stanton in the Arizona Fall League. I mean, that is, that is high praise. It's maybe a bit too high, but I mean, that's an interesting name to have attached to you. The, the point is that this is like another just dynamic position player that the White Sox have added. So between him and Moncada, who they got in a trade, and you throw in Luis Robert, who they... Who, who they who they sign and it's just like this is a potential just like wow 
right. lineup. And we haven't even talked about the fact that Avicel Garcia has apparently learned how to hit <laughs> after years of frustration. Uh, so as you say, the White Sox are very interesting. But moving on to this year's Futures game, there's a bunch of guys who are, I think it's pretty easy to see in the big leagues in the next year or two, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the guys who stood out, who we knew would stand out, was Michael Kopech, who hit like, you know, there were like 101 in the game. But we knew he could, with pitchers, it's a little less exciting, the stat cast aspect, because like, they're we, one we inning. Know, we kind of know. We know. Like we knew Michael Kopech. I mean, he's hit. Right. I think 105 in he, a pull down. He well, uh, yes, that was the report last year. But what was also interesting is if you looked at his spin rate, and I don't have the number in front of me, but his average spin rate for like the six fastballs or whatever he threw would have been the second highest spin rate in baseball this year on a four seam fastball, which I find interesting because even though we know velocity and spin is it's correlated for a single pitcher, we spend so much time talking about how Lucas Giolito does not have that spin rate. So I find that interesting. Like you know, these two guys who are very highly touted both acquired in trades for the White Sox may have different futures. And I'm not saying that Giolito can't be good. I still think he can be good, but he might just not have like the fat, the wipeout. Uh, I'm going to blow you away and get swinging strikes fastball that is correlated with high spin. Yeah. But anyway, other guys in this, this year's futures game, the one guy that really stood out to me was the Braves outfield prospect, uh, Ronald Acuna. But he went 0 for 4, so he didn't have a good game. <laughs> <laughs> the, the best part, he had, he had the only barrel of the game, um, you know, barrels being the sort of optimal, the stack has definition of the optimal uh, batted ball contact, starting at, I guess, 98 degrees? 98 90 degrees, miles 98 miles per hour, not the boy band, yeah. 98 degrees, 98 miles per hour between 26 and 30, and as you hit it harder, the uh, band of launch angle gets wider. Uh, it's really about how can you find that success with a minimum average of 500 and slugging 1,500, but the average is really more like 800 and 3,000. Well, anyway, it was the only barrel of the game. Unfortunately, he hit it uh, right at uh, the center right fielder, Corey Ray. Corey's prospect, Corey Ray, but it was the only barrel. It was hit at 112.3 miles per hour, which was the har- not only the hardest hit ball of the game, my favorite stat of the Futures game, it was harder hit than any ball an Atlanta Braves player has had this year, <laughs> which isn't even an insult. Like, the Braves have Matt Kemp. He hits the ball hard. Freddie Freeman hits the ball hard. Tyler Flowers Been crushing the ball. hits the ball. Like, exit velocity, he hits the ball really hard. 112 is, uh, speaking of other, you know, R&B bands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I enjoyed that. Um, uh, I, I believe it's in the top 1% yeah, of, of Major League Baseball battle balls. It's, but the point is, that's a skill. You can't fake it, right? Like, I could not fake... No, Most Major Leaguers could not fake throwing a ball 100 miles an hour like Chapman can. If you, you can't even do it once. And I think this is kind of the same thing. You have to have this skill. And at, at 19 or 20 or whatever he is, that's a legit skill. That's extremely impressive. Um, in addition to that, he had the three hardest outfield throws of the day. Hitting 92.9, 95.2, and 96.7. So this is, you look at this kind of guy and like, you see five tools thrown around, and this is the kind of guy that like, this guy legitimately has the five-tool package. I, I really look forward to the 2020 Braves-White Sox World Series because the Braves <laughs> have a lot of guys like this. Um, MLB Pipeline, again, not only called him a five-tool talent, but said evaluators get downright giddy when discussing Acuna. Who was just promoted to AAA, uh, after the Futures game, I think um, I had a season line down here. But I don't have it. It's, so it's, it's probably still too, still, still too soon to see him this year, but it's not unreasonable to see him next year. And that's kind of the point of the Futures game. We've seen guys like Aaron Judge in the Futures game. We've seen Trey Turner in recent Futures games. Uh, these guys get there pretty quickly once you get to that point. Gary Sanchez was in the Futures game last year and then almost won, and still almost won AL Rookie of the Year. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, another guy who stood out is uh, someone who's actually already seen some big league time, Derek Fisher. Outfield prospect for the Houston Astros was up, I think, had uh, five games earlier and hit two home runs for the Astros and and went back down. Um, He actually scored the first run of the game, and this was on one of those 
plays where Acuna tried to throw him out and didn't, you know, didn't quite get there. So he came around from second base to score the first run of the game on a single, and he got to a sprint speed of 29 feet per second, 29.6 feet per second. And so we've been talking about sprint speed a lot, but it basically it measures a runner's speed in feet per second uh, in their fastest one-second window, so it's their top speed. The MLB average is 27 the elite guys like Hamilton and Buxton, their averages get up to about 30. The slowest guys, catchers, DH is about 23. So 29.6, and that's legit. That's another thing you can't fake. Like, the slow runners cannot fake that. That's a legit skill. And, uh, you know, Fisher is a guy we already saw crush the ball. He's mashing the ball, too, and he can run. Yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a really unique it's – a, it's a unique profile. He's having a fantastic season in, in the minors. Um, he could be trade bait if the, if the Astros decide they really want to – if they end up going out to – uh, trade for a Sunny Gray, which is a big rumor. I think he'd be. I think he would be the. He would front that package. I don't think they'd give up Kyle Tucker, but I think they would give up Fisher. But he's. It's we've talked about recently about Bradley Zimmer, and I sort of compare Fisher a little bit to him in the sense that like, it's rare to see guys drafted out of college with sort of like a dynamic position players with like the speed, power, like multi-dimensional. Combo, which is it's, the, the players with those skill sets usually end up getting drafted out of high school. So to see another guy, both of them sort of fit this similar profile, being like surprisingly fast with some pop, like um, both first round picks. Fisher, Fisher actually had come into his senior year, his junior year, being discussed as like a top five, maybe the number one overall pick when he was at Virginia. But he, I think it was a hand injury and just had kind of a mediocre junior year, ended up falling to like the end of the first round or supplemental first round. But now you're seeing. Um, the kind of talent that he is. Of course, the base stealing is not, the speed is not necessarily manifested itself in base stealing. 2015, he was 31 for 38. Okay, that's good. Last year, 28 for, uh, 28 for 35. Also good. This year, 14 for 24. Not so good. Less good. <laughs> not so good. Well, as you can tell, uh, Matt and I both very much enjoy the Futures game because you get to see these guys and put some numbers to them. Um, you know, tomorrow's stars are here today, basically, literally. But I, I do kind of want to move on and talk about a guy who had become one of the probably five biggest young superstars in baseball and struggled through a, a pretty disappointing first half, and that's Manny Machado. Uh, Manny Machado's on-base percentage is below 300 right now. Uh, he, his on-base and his slugging are almost to the second decimal point, exactly what they were when he was a 19-year-old rookie in 2012. This is a guy who, over the last two years, totally blossomed. He was up there in the conversations with Trout, with Harper, with Stanton. I mean, he was, he was the guy. And this year, it hasn't really worked out so much. I mean, there, was, there was, were legitimate conversations recently of when he, he and Harper are free agents at the same time, who's going to get more? A year ago, if you asked that question, you could, you know, when, when Harper was kind of scuffling and Machado was having a career year, you could sort of say, oh, that, that, that's actually a debate that worth having. Maybe not so much right now, but the, the, the point is, like, Machado is still pretty young. And 20, still, 24, I think. Yeah, and still, I'm the, I still consider him one of the 10 best players in the game, despite his... his but I agree, and when, you know, everybody talks about Nolan Arenado, like, oh, he's by far the best defensive third baseman in baseball, and it's like, yeah, I'll buy he's the best, but can we not forget that Machado exists and is also extremely good? It's pretty close, and people seem to forget about Machado, I think, because he's not hitting, uh, which is sort of what's plagued, like, the gold gloves for years. But is he really not hitting? Wow, that's a very interesting question and a very professional uh, you know, segue into our, our question here. So the surface stats say no, he's not hitting, right? Poor batting average, poor on-base percentage, poor slugging. But I always like to look at the underlying skills here, and, and this is a piece I just heard today. Uh, who's going to be likely to bounce back from a hitting perspective in the second half? And I got to say Manny Machado. 
we have defined, uh, you know, 95 miles an hour as our hard hit baseline of, of exit velocity, right? That's really where a ball turns from a, a batted ball into a hard hit batted ball. Manny Machado has hit the most batted balls at 95 miles an hour or more of anybody. He's done it 128 times. So that says to me a couple things. It says to me, well, he's not hurt. The, speed, the, batted, the, the, the swing speed is still there. He's still capable of squaring up the baseball. He's not getting fooled by pitches. He's striking out a little bit more, which is true, but he's still hitting balls extremely hard, uh, and the production just hasn't been there. So that's something that I like to look at a lot. Like, you know, in May, I wrote uh, about how Jackie Bradley was struggling pretty badly, but he was hitting the ball extremely well, and ever since then, Jackie Bradley's been crushing. So they don't always all work out that well, but that one did. I'm on board with Machado doing better in the second half. By the way, he had three home runs in the last week before the All-Star break. Exactly. I was just about to say, he had a two-homer game over the weekend. Um... I'm I, I'm buying the bounce back, and what's, one thing that's interesting, I want because I I also think the the Orioles should be looking to shop them aggressively. I'll get to that in a second, but I want to make one other point about the hard hit leader. So, the hard hit leaderboard, 95 miles per hour plus. We've got Machado number one, Cano, Yelich, and Jose Abreu tied for second at 124. We've got Carlos Correa at number five, and the number six fascinates me, Mookie Betts. Matt's about to drop some uh, math education on and you here. The reason why Mookie Betts fascinates me is because. He is a perfect example of why average exit velocity is not a great way of looking at a player from a StatCast perspective. We often get questions of who are the leaders in average exit velocity, and it's not meaningless. I'm not, not suggesting it's meaningless. Right. It's still judge at the top of that, yeah, too. Yeah, it's, it's, it, and it's guys, you know, it's Nelson Cruz, it's guys with the ball hard. The problem is that, as we've said before, a batted ball at 90 miles an hour and 80 miles an hour and 70 miles per hour are almost all the same. Like, the production is, you're not going to get a, a wide range of production. However, once you get past 95 and 100, 105, you see huge jumps in project, production. And Mookie Betts, for example, he's never going to hit the ball 110 miles an hour. But he is more often than pretty much any, I mean, as often as anyone else, hitting that ball in that, like, 95 to 105 zone. So he does it with such regularity that that's far more important than his average exit velocity. His average exit velocity of guys who put the ball in play 100 times this year, ranks 99th. 99th. Tied, tied with Cole Calhoun. So he's a good example of consistency in that small window. Because you're right, he's not going to have those extreme 117-mile-an-hour batted balls. But if he's up there pretty consistently hitting it, you know, 94, 95, 97, 98, uh, and maybe fewer of those 60, 65. Because you're right, at a certain point, if you hit it poorly, does it matter if it's 40 or 65? It doesn't, but it certainly will drag down your average, depending on which one of those is. Uh, and so that's that's less of a, a stack cast thing, I guess, than just a math thing. Like average can be flawed uh, in a great deal of ways. But anyway, going back to Machado for a second, um, if I'm the Orioles, I think the Orioles should be looking to rebuild and fast. There was and- a report right before we came on that the they are talking to the Dodgers about Zach Britton, which I think would be a fantastic fit for both sides. I mean, the Dodgers have pieces. They certainly could slot Britain instead of in, in front of uh, Kenley Jansen and make like the best eight, nine in major league history, essentially. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the thing. And even as a team is good to the Dodgers, you can know every team could always use more relief pitching and, and Britain's not a rental. He's under control through next year. So it'll be a year and a half thing as is Machado. And I, there's, there are enough contenders out there with needs at third base or shortstop, mind you, because I still the fact that Manny Machado has never played shortstop regularly in the majors still kind of bothers me because I still kind of think he should be a shortstop. I, I'm coming around on it. At first, I didn't because he'd hurt his knees twice, and I thought, okay, maybe. But but he, when he has had to fill in there, he's looked fine. But what's interesting is that in in context of this um, Cubs White Sox trade, because you know it was like. 
the controversy of them trading within within their you know within the same city. Granted, they don't play in the same division, and but along the same lines, you often hear, well, don't trade in the same division, because it just so happens that probably the best two fit two fits for Machado are in the same division, where the Yankees and Red Sox have been getting nothing from third base. Can, uh, can I'm gonna I want you to explain, and then I'm gonna explain why I fully agree with you on one of those and fully disagree with you on the other one. But go ahead. Um, so the, the Red Sox third base production in terms of weighted runs created plus uh, 29th in MLB at third base, Yankees 24th. And the reason why these teams on, in, in a vacuum are great fits is because they have the need and they also are the kinds of teams, you know when Machado's a free agent, both these teams are going to be bidding for him anyway. So they're both the kind of teams that are positioned, assuming they're positioned if this, um, if a trade went well to just to bring him back to to extend him, and we're seeing that more and more often, where teams trade for guys and extend them. And they may be the only two contenders seriously in the market for a third baseman, right? Because third base is pretty deep. You know, you got your Turners, your Arenados, your Bryants. There's a lot of teams that just don't need a third baseman, and so they might be the. T- I can't really think of another one off the top of my head that would seriously need a third baseman. Yeah, there's one team that could use a shortstop that I don't really think would trade for Machado, but I would be excited to see it. And that's the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> uh, un- unlikely, but, but sure. Another team I would see potentially uh, resounding Machado, so they'd be less likely um, to want to give up the prospects it would take to get him. The Yankees interest me because also they they have Gregorius, who they have you know under control for a while at shortstop, and they also have Gleyber Torres, who just had Tommy John surgery, who's a good prospect. His value might be a little low, but like he's he'd be a fascinating piece because. The, the Yankees, considering the circumstances, are probably willing to, to trade him in the short term in a way that maybe they weren't two months ago. Yeah, and remember, Tommy John surgeries for position players aren't really as serious. It's serious, but he's expected to be 100% next spring. Yeah. So it's not going to cost him a whole year of season or anything like that. I mean, again, it's probably not going to happen. least teams, it's you know the, the history of that division, but I do think the Orioles are in a spot where they're they're sort of in that they're 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 sort of in a position similar to the Reds. I gotta say, where they're probably a long way away from being an elite team. They've had really, really struggled to develop pitching. And, like, the fact that Gausman's a guy who's, like, he's been expecting to become good for about three years now. I'm finally giving up on him. Big step back this year. Um, I, he, he looked pretty good last year. I'm, I've been out on Bundy for Bundy's a long time. Just kinda, I think he's just going to be a guy. Yeah. Um, injury's obviously a factor there. But they have, they have two great pieces right now who are under control until 2000 through 2018 that they could really jumpstart a rebuild if they dealt them. And they probably could still get good packages for them this offseason, so I can understand why they want to hold on to them, but if I were them, I'd really be aggressively looking to see what's out there for those two guys right now. You, uh, let me, let me, so there's a couple things here I agree with you on. I agree with you fully. The Orioles should be looking to move some of these big pieces um, because a guy like Britain, yeah, you don't want to wait till the offseason because then you lose the allure of a postseason, and we can make all our jokes about him not pitching in the wildcard game we want. He would be extremely valuable, and you saw what guys like Miller and what guys like Chapman brought back last year. So I think right away that would be huge. I don't see them actually trading Machado right now until he actually starts hitting better. I agree with you that they should explore it, but I don't see it happening. Uh, If they did, the Yankees are a phenomenal fit. I completely agree with that. Here's the thing about the Red Sox. That whole ridiculous beanball war, like from early in the season, you know, putting him in the clubhouse there, it seems unlikely to me. While I think that's stupid, I'm just saying, like, that's kind of the real world factor here. I guess, but if, let's just say, argument's sake, that. What happened last weekend is a, a sign of Machado goes crazy for two weeks. If if on July 30th he's on the stretch where he's hit, you know, seven home runs in two weeks, hitting four, you know, showing if he's being the Manny Machado of old, 
I think that he could easily, in a two-week stretch, change the conversation about him as a trade piece. I do enjoy the idea of the Yankees and Red Sox competing to see which one gets Machado and which one gets Todd Frazier, right? Because he's the other. Now that Moustakas is probably not going to be dealt, Frazier, I think, is the other main third base option out there. Uh, and these two teams have got to do something. Like They have to. So I, I think that would be interesting. Well, I agree with you, uh, I still think Machado is going to be uh, in Baltimore. Let's finish up by moving on to our Hall of Fame. Every week we induct a very interesting stack cast play from the previous week into the Hall of Fame. Now, as you may have noticed, there haven't been very many games over the last week because it's the All-Star break. And even though we've been trying our hardest not to just induct Aaron Judge home runs every week, when somebody hits a 513-foot home run, even if it's in glorified batting practice in the Home Run Derby, uh, he's going to be the man, right? I assume you all saw the Home Run Derby, and I got to say he more than lived up to expectations. I mean, he, he hit 47 home runs, uh, a total distance of nearly four miles by himself. Uh, he hit a couple over 500, and he hit one. He hit four over 500, including two in a row. One including two in a row. He hit one, 118 miles an hour, 35 degrees, which is essentially perfect, 500 and 13 feet. Now, uh, the longest home run in the three years of StatCast that we have tracked uh, in actual gameplay is Giancarlo Stanton, 504 feet at Coors Field, by the way, which is like the perfect mixture of player and location. Uh, the next two longest are 495 by Judge himself earlier this year and Chris Bryant in what I believe was a pretty strong Wrigley Field wind uh, a couple of years ago. So, I mean, that is really interesting. And in addition to just saying, wow, 513 feet is pretty cool, it sort of raises the question, how far can a human being hit a baseball in these conditions? Because there are all these like ac- these stories from like years ago where Mickey Mantle hit 565 and somebody like in the Negro League hit one 700 feet. And I suppose if there's like a hurricane force wind behind you with like 60 miles of wind at your back, some of that's possible, sure. But I have a really, really difficult time even like going back to the greats of our sport, Mantle, Ruth, Garrick, whoever, that any of those men were just as physically strong as Aaron Judge is right now. Or, I can't see it possibly happening. Or- Carlos Peguero. Who... Or Carlos Peguero. <laughs> so here's a name I did not expect we'd be talking about today. Carlos Peguero, who was a uh, Mariners prospect, I believe, for a while. I mean, the Red Sox for a little bit. Uh, never made enough contact. Like, he reminds me of William O'Pena in a lot of ways. To Le- get... Left-hand hitter, though, but that's Oh, well, sure. Yeah. But to get to his, uh, his, his huge power. So he's actually playing uh, in Japan right now. And... There, uh, some of the ballparks, not all, but some of them in, in Japan actually have TrackMan set up. And he hit one that was measured at, wait for it, 513 feet uh, over the weekend, and we watched the video. And my God, does that hold up? I mean, that that passes well, the I, eye test. I, I, I would say, uh, if I could have seen it, maybe I it was <laughs> no. like, the whole crowd is just like, where did it, it go? It goes it's like just, 40 rows deep out in right field. The uh, camera doesn't know what to do. It's just like flailing all over the place. But what I found interesting is, so uh, Aaron Judge hit his 513 in Miami with the roof closed. And so did Pagaro. It was in a dome. So these are kind of like environment-neutral home runs, which is, which is cool because, you know, I, you always got to account for elevation, say Colorado or humidity or the wind. But these two guys hit at 513 in essentially neutral environments. And I think the ball in, in Japan is slightly different than the Major League ball. So, you know, take that into effect. But um, I don't know. what's If you forget, like, wind and, and elevation and everything, 525-ish, does that, that's got to be where guys can top out. I mean, I mean, I mean, it certainly, it certainly has to be. We're seeing it right now. I mean, Aaron Judge in a, in a batting practice environment, topped out at five thirteen. We've seen in a game environment, him and Stanton basically top out around five hundred. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that was pointed out to me was so you know he hit this uh, Judge did you know off of a batting practice fastball. So let's call it sixty five miles an hour. 
Now, if you hit one off of a ball that was thrown, let's say, at 100 miles an hour, uh, that will go out further. Because while the, the myth of hard in, hard out is not as strong as people like to think it was, it's not nothing. You know, the, the physics has shown that the, uh, the batter is responsible for 82% of exit velocity. So the pitch is 18%. 18% isn't nothing, but it's also a lot harder to square up. I mean, that's so, the hard so part. So what, what I want to see now is what I want to see is judge in the box against a, the best command. Who's the best command pitcher in baseball right now? The best command pitcher? Who has the best command in baseball right now? Uh, I, I don't know. Chris Sale. I don't know. You're putting me on this spot. I mean, like, <laughs> someone who's like just throws, can throw a, a dead, a dead what, straight. Basically, what you want is a batting practice version where he knows it's not going to be an, a breaking yes. pitch. It's going to be 100 miles, miles an hour. hour I'd say 90 miles well, an hour. Well, something he knows it's coming, so it's easier for him to time up. If right? a pitcher to say to him, I'm going to throw a 90-mile-an-hour fastball right down the heart of the plate and just get – or just do a pitching machine – Right, feeding him at ninety miles an hour, right down the. And road. then we can really do the test. That's that's the real. That's that the would real be interesting. Test. How do we make that happen? Oh, we'll get back to. We'll, you. <laughs> well, now now that's something to think about this because we need that in a controlled environment. And then after we do that in a neutral environment, then I want that to happen at course field. We've got all sorts of ideas. We just have to get them on the field. Uh, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. He's Matt Myers. We will catch you next week. Thanks very much for listening.